Welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast, your weekly source for questions and answers around equity in yoga, hosted by Jeevana Heyman and Amber Carnes. Join us each week for powerful conversations with thought leaders at the intersection of justice, knowledge, and practice. Welcome to episode 36. I'm your host, Amber Carnes. In episode 36, Jeevana sits down with Daniel Simpson to talk about yoga philosophy and his new book, The Truth of Yoga, a comprehensive guide to yoga's history, texts, philosophy, and practices. Daniel is a former foreign correspondent who has gone on to study and teach yoga, meditation, yoga history, and yoga philosophy at everywhere from the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies to Tri-Yoga in London and beyond. Jeevana and Daniel discuss many concepts and themes from yoga philosophy during this podcast, including the role of ethics in yoga and how our individual interpretation of the teachings influences how we live our yoga. This conversation invites us to consider how we use self-study and practice to either retreat from the world or become a more conscious citizen. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Here we go. Hi, this is Jeevana, and thanks for joining me for another episode of our podcast. I'm so excited today to be talking with Daniel Simpson, uh, who's the author, author of a new book, The Truth of Yoga. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Jeevana. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, you're in the UK somewhere, is that right? That's right, yeah, just northwest of Oxford, um, kind of the middle of nowhere and uh, in, in the deep midwinter at the moment. So, yeah, it's oh, a wow. bit shivery. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, well, I'm in California. It's actually quite warm here today. So. <laughs> <laughs> I shall, Sorry. I, I, I shall roast my hands on the glow coming out the screen. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's good for something. Maybe that blue light is warming. Um, all right, so I didn't really give you much of an intro. I wonder, can you tell us about yourself a little bit? Would you mind? Sure, sure. Um, as you say, I've just published a book, The Truth of Yoga, um, and that really sums up what I've been teaching for the last five years or so. I am a long-standing yoga practitioner who's always been curious about yoga philosophy um, ever since I, I guess when I first tried to open a yoga text to make sense of what we were doing in yoga class and I discovered that uh, the Yoga Sutra and the Bhagavad Gita in particular didn't seem to say anything about what we were doing in our weekly classes. I was always wanting to understand you know, what that disconnect might reveal and, 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 you know, where in some ways, you know, yoga history explains the the sort of the gap between the ancient past and, uh, you know, the very sort of popular present. And so I eventually ended up back at college in my forties doing a master's degree and uh, studying at SOAS in London, very fortunately with some of the world experts on the subject. So Mark Singleton, Jim Mallinson, Jason Birch, uh, Daniela Bevilacqua were sort of together under the, the umbrella of the Hatha Yoga Project for five years. And I started out studying with them and then I, I just kept following what they were doing. And I've been inspired by their work. And a lot of you know what I've written is, I guess, my attempt to distill some of their findings, combine them with what I've learned in the last 15, 20 years and uh, make it as accessible as possible, to, to use a popular phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm curious about your um, journalism background, though, because mm. I read that you mentioned it in, in that interview you did with Seth Powell on his podcast. I was listening and you talked yeah. about that a bit. I, I was really intrigued by that. Well, that's, yeah, I suppose the backstory, yeah, the story behind the story in every sense. Um, I mean, firstly, in terms of writing the book, I mean, I, I've always been a writer and um, I've always wanted to write a book about yoga. But I wasn't quite sure what form that would take. Um, I once upon a time wrote a memoir about how I went badly off the rails after my experiences as a foreign correspondent. Um, and I called that book a rough guide to the dark side. And I guess I wanted to <laughs> make sure this one was a, a brighter text. And uh, at first I thought it was going to be a story about how yoga had, had helped me, I suppose, to face my demons, change my life. <laughs> Uh, stop smoking weed all day, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, in the end, it, you know, it became much less about me. In fact, there's not really much me in it. I put a little bit in the introduction and the conclusion to try and explain why I've written the book and also, you know, how I go about what I suggest, you know, the book invites us to do, which is to, you know, reappraise how we relate to yoga philosophy in light of yoga history and acknowledging that things have changed a lot. They've been mixed and matched from lots of different sources. And so we in the present are inevitably doing some of that too. And uh, we get get a bit of freedom to 
go with what inspires us. But at the same time, that comes with some responsibility to acknowledge what we're doing. So um, I guess my journalistic training helped me to do that because um, I'm, you know, I guess originally I was a, a, a newswire journalist. Um, so my job was to distill things into the pithiest, shortest possible form, a bit like a sutra. And um, so I tried to you know, distill all these aspects of you know, yoga history and philosophy in, into short, digestible, you know, blog-length chapters, and therefore, hopefully, have, have have shown how you know really yoga is made up of building blocks in terms of you know the, the theory behind the practice. Some blocks combined to build some structures; others, you know, rearrange slightly differently, create completely different structures. And uh, so, I think I think my my training in that sense was helpful, but. Ultimately, I mean, it all comes back to, you know, I went slightly off the rails and, and, and yoga helped me find my way. So I think um, what I learned at that time was uh, it's very important to me. I was I was radicalized, I suppose. It's you know, getting on for 20 years ago now. And, the, you know, the wars of the Bush administration after the uh, the attacks on New York and Washington in 2001, I was, you know, involved in writing about that stuff. And you know, I was uh, radicalized. I, I wanted to stop it, <laughs> and that, that wasn't that wasn't what my bosses saw their job as being. Instead, you know, we were basically. I mean, at that time, I worked for the New York Times. My job, effectively, was to take dictation from the American embassy. Really, and it really came to it. If they phone me up and summon me in for a briefing, I, I, I certainly am not meant to pick, pick that to pieces. I remember basically being kicked out of the American ambassador's office in Belgrade after I. I uh, I argued with him a bit. I remember him telling me it's, it, it's in your nature, and I suppose I was I was quite argumentative when I was younger, and I, I I wanted to put things right. I wanted to find the truth. I wanted to tell the truth, and I guess I was you know I was an angry young man, and yoga helped me to find some way of combining my interest in seeking the truth with trying to find a bit of peace inside myself. It's all very well, you know, trying to make peace in the world. But if, if you're doing that with anger, that, that doesn't make any peace at all. It just spreads more, more, more venom. That's so interesting. Thank you. Yeah. I was really curious about that. Um, you know, that, cause I heard you mention that when, when you talked with Seth about radicalized, becoming radicalized and having mm-hmm. opinions and wanting to make change in the world. And I think, I mean, I really connected to that personally cause that's my background, you know, I, I was an AIDS activist and sure. that's what, I mean, that's really what compelled me to become a yoga teacher was to, um, you know, share yoga with my community and, and, and in a way I, I definitely have an activist perspective. And so I'm curious about that. Like I, I just, I actually just finished reading your book and I, I was, yeah. it's amazing. I just want to say like, if, if anyone's, you know, whoever's listening, I mean, it's really worth reading. It's an incredible, I, I don't know what the word is like survey of the whole of yoga. Like <laughs> I've never really seen in one relatively slim text, which is, I think, I mean, it just, I think it shows that you have that journalism background because you're able to cover so much ground um, very quickly. Um, and, and I am jealous just because, you know, I just I just finished writing my second book and I wish I actually had read this before I finished. But um, I know how hard writing is. I mean, I don't have a background in writing, so uh, it's just oh, it's just so hard. But um yeah, you're very clear and concise. And um, like I said, you cover so much. And I think in a very neutral way, in fact, I, that's what kind of surprised me because I, I had the sense that you have this kind of activist hmm. part or something that you have this kind of, um, I don't know, that perspective. And yet I, I, I was surprised by, I mean, if we can maybe start at the end of your book, like sure. some of the things you say about contemporary practice surprised me a little bit because I feel like... Um, I think you're trying to be neutral and I get, I appreciate that. Um, but it feels like, I don't know, a little, I felt a little sad at the end. Do you know Uh, what I mean? Like a little, I don't know. It seemed almost, I don't know what to say. uh, Cynical. I mean, is that fair? What what do you think? Am I projecting uh, that you felt cynical or that you felt that I was cynical? That you were a little cynical about, about contemporary movements around like trauma informed teaching and um, social yeah. justice, integration <laughs> and yoga. I don't know that I'm cynical. Um, I think I've seen a lot in the last five years that's made me wary of, uh, you know, my, my heartfelt instinct to be on board with that. Um, because I see, 
I see a lot of, uh, of of dogma, to be honest, and and, and intolerance that creeps in. And uh, you know, I, I don't want to particularly name names or pin yeah. any, any individual, <laughs> but um, I've seen that you know these 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 arguments about accessibility. I mean, it's less about accessibility and much more about you know. I mean, it started out with what is and isn't yoga, I suppose, and uh, and and then it morphed into you know which which things are damaging to people, which which systems of yoga enable abuse, and and, and I saw some of the people who were you know, leading those debates being quite abusive, to be honest, um, and because they think they're on the side of the angels, that's all rationalised away, and I I, I just I found that sat very uncomfortably with me, and uh, you know ultimately I think the problem is that. And this is, I suppose, why I came to that conclusion in the end. It was partly to a product of its time writing at the moment when some of those debates were were very vocal a couple of years ago in the the wake of Me Too. Um, And also the history of yoga. Um, There has never been such a thing as as one true yoga. There is no way of coming up with the system that will make, you know, everybody get on board with with the right way of doing things, that there will always be diversity. And, you know, the whole sort of movement to make things more accessible, equitable, fair rests upon you know, preserving diversity and serving diversity. And, and, and that ultimately means that one size cannot fit all. That uh, no matter how uh, well-informed and well-intentioned the suggestions for, for improving things might be, others might disagree for very good reasons. And that will be okay. It doesn't make them bad. And I think I found a lot of the discussion tending towards the finger pointing and you know, get on board with my program or you're the enemy. And, and I just found that depressing. Yeah, no, I, I, I think actually maybe what it has, what I, what I saw in the whole book was kind of a focus on um, ego, like kind of the egotistical nature of, of humans and how yeah. <laughs> we've interpreted and taught yoga through that lens over centuries, maybe that maybe thousands of years even. Um, I mean, that's the human condition. That's what the Buddha and uh, various yogic uh, sages in their wisdom have tried to warn us about. The, the more attached we are to the idea of being right, the uh, the further away we are from being liberated to, to a certain extent. Although obviously at the same time that has to be balanced with you know, the real world and the fact that injustice exists and people abuse one another and uh, one has to draw a line somewhere. But uh, getting that balance right is a very tricky thing. Yeah, I mean, I that's that's I guess why I felt maybe cynical wasn't the right word, but it just it felt a little um, yeah, just sad because I I think that's what I saw in in the history of yoga too that that you described was just the way that people have used the teachings or or even created the teachings based on their own personal perspective and their own selfish desires, which does seem to be at odds with what that. <laughs> focus of the teachings are um i mean you give some amazing examples um and yeah i mean the the diversity of the teachings is incredible i mean the way you describe but i guess i'm i'm curious what you think though about the kind of the ethics and just because again this is what i've i've been writing about so my book is Mm -hmm. really about yoga philosophy but from a very much a social justice perspective and i i really tried to hone in on the ethical teachings and try to look at, you know, are there ethical teachings that do transcend our individual desires? And you know what I mean? Like, are there ways that we should act in the world that are in line with yoga, uh, you know, with the yoga teachings, like Ahimsa? And actually, you have a beautiful line, maybe I could read it to you, um, around, you talk about, um, I think you're talking this section around... Um, first, do no harm. You're talking about the sutras. Mm. And you said the role of ethics is to calm the mind and to look within. And I was like, yes, that's that's it. Because I feel like that's also the, the theme, you know, within the teachings. Um, and so it's really interesting to for me that you, you made that connection between ethics and the goal of yoga. You know what I mean? I think I think this is the thing that really struck me, Jeevan. And, um, you know, the, the, the book grew out of a time in my life when I was considering doing a PhD. I was accepted onto a PhD program at uh, Syracuse University in in upstate New York. And for lots of personal reasons, I didn't go ahead with that. But um, my my proposal was to write about, you know, activist movements in yoga. And I didn't intend to do it from a position of skepticism. But at the same time, I wasn't really sure how to marry the modern disconnect (laughs) between what these teachings say, which is largely world renouncing and and what people would like them to say 
which is much more about how we improve society. And that has not, that's not been the concern of, of most texts in the yoga tradition, unfortunately. And I think it's, I suppose I ended up writing this book as, as the first step. I, I've got another book up my sleeve, which I alluded to when speaking with Seth. And, and it's, it's pretty much what you're talking about by the sounds of it in your book. It's, it's, it's you know, how do, how do we move beyond this? And I, I felt like the first thing we have to acknowledge is that most, most texts on yoga don't say what we'd like them to. And actually, if we really drill down to the way that they're presenting the things that even you know, sound appealing despite that, say, the ethical teachings that Patanjali offers, despite his ultimate goal being basically to turn the lights out and disappear. Um, uh, yeah, we, we, we find that he's teaching those things as a prelude to withdrawal. It's, it's easier to leave the world behind. It's easier to meditate if you haven't created more disturbance for yourself by making enemies behaving in, 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 in a way that, you know, creates bad thought vibrations effectively is what he's saying. So, um, it's all about that. And, and, Really, the, the the only mainstream yoga text that, that I know of that talks about action in the world is, is the Bhagavad Gita. Right. Yeah. And then at the same time, if we really drill down to the politics of that, you know, <laughs> you uphold the caste system, know your place, shut up, yeah. get on with it. So it's, yeah. uh, it's awkward. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I mean, that's I why I'm, I'm lucky. Say, when, we've, when we've drawn that baseline, then we can say, okay, well, we're going to have to reinterpret things. And there is socially engaged Buddhism that draws on teachings of, 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 of the Buddha and, and and at the same time reframes them somewhat and i think yoga needs that to happen but first we actually have to acknowledge that the teachings we've got don't say what we'd like them to yeah well i think that's what i was going to say i think i'm lucky because i'm not an academic and i think that's also why i've avoided going back to school and doing what you did i mean part of it is that i had kids and didn't Mm. have time but um i i you know for me in my book i just say like i'm a practitioner you yeah. know, and that's my lens. Like, I don't, I don't pretend any <laughs> expertise other than that. Um, you know, what my experience has been practicing and teaching and what my teachers have taught me. So, I mean, I, I, I see the, the conundrum that you have, um, you know, now that you, you really are an academic and you're in that world, it's like, it's harder to give your, um, your perspective. Maybe. <laughs> Although I suppose that's why I didn't do the PhD. And in, in, I mean, I'm, I teach at the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies, but um, you know that's 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 a sort of step outside of the university. It's uh, it's got university affiliation, but it's really uh, you know a, a adult education platform. Effectively, I mean, it supports. You know, there are there are courses there that are offered to university students, but um, my role is much more teaching online courses for for practitioners and the general public. So I'm actually in a, a lucky position that I can draw on the, the scholarly findings but at the same time try to present them in ways that people yeah really want answers to you know how, how do these teachings relate to how we live and as i say what i wanted to do first by writing this book was to try and just summarize what's in the yoga texts and what do they tell us and really i think what i tried to say at the end of the book is that that, that leaves us with with a choice we, we're inevitably going to have to do some reframing perhaps even some reinterpreting perhaps some complete rewriting and maybe some of the things we'd like to do in the world don't need the yoga traditions sort of uh, endorsement for us to do them and to feel that they're worth doing. Um, and I, I know a lot of the time it's, it's tempting to reach for these texts to, to give us backup, but um, yeah, the right thing to do is the right thing to do, whether or not Patanjali says so. Yeah. But I, I think what I, what I found, what I've tried to do in my book is to look at, um, inspiration from the text you know and i know that it's definitely an interpretation but i think it has to do with thinking well some of these some of these ideas have stayed around for thousands of years and so maybe there's some meaning there and um and i think i do i definitely take it with like a it's a personal angle um anyway but i don't want to talk about me i want to talk about you and your work so (laughs) i i want to know like I, i think um can I go? Let's go back to like ancient yoga for a minute. I, sure. I'm just curious. What I what I would wonder is, did you see themes, um, you know, in in the ancient teachings? Because I like I I kind of mentioned. I mean, you cover so much time and so many texts. It's really quite astounding. Um, were there themes for you though that came through? 
very strongly and uh, i suppose that's why i've come to this conclusion really about about what what what, what really is the dominant message from from, from from the yoga tradition to the extent we can generalize because there isn't really one but there you know there, there are many but they do have one thing in common at the beginning and it's um renouncing <laughs> it's it's really that you know life life causes pro- problems um partly because of how we identify ourselves in relation to existence and the rest of our surroundings. And the simplest solution that early yogis came up with was to do nothing. Um, and you know, the ultimate expression of that was to sit down, stop eating, <laughs> stop breathing, and leave the body behind. Um, and it's really only about you know, a thousand years ago that that, 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 that mentality got knocked sideways by tantric philosophy and we end up with physical yoga practice potentially is sort of the last gasp of (laughs) summing all of that idea up you know how how to leave the world behind and um i i I hadn't really realized until i studied in more depth with with people who are far more learned than me um how consistent that message is it's not the only message um and certainly in the bhagavad-gita krishna is 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 very critical of people who think that they can do such a thing as to stop acting (laughs) i mean our body does things whether we want it to or not uh, unless 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 we kill it (laughs) which doesn't sound very sensible um but at the same time, you know, the, 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 that message resonates. And it, it seems to have been, I mean, it comes from the idea of, of, of the problem of karma um, caused by action in the world. We uh, you know, have disturbances in our minds. Uh, we're, um, I guess, uh, conditioned to behave in certain ways as a result of things that have you know, taken place in our lives or generations before us i mean there's a sort of intergenerational trauma understanding here but the solution is not to to make peace and and to try and put in place the conditions for for less suffering for others it's to you know try and unwind them in ourselves and and disappear again and again that's the message so it it was it was a radically self-centered approach to something that was all about being too self-centered it's it's a very strange paradox in a way you're right Um, but isn't it uh you disappear but is it also enlightenment because you do say like at the end you say well there's no such thing as enlightenment um but it seems like <laughs> it seems like that is what the focus is on a lot of those early well it is but then the texts don't end with stories about well now that you're enlightened you can um you know like a good bodhisattva in in, in mahayana buddhism renounce your enlightenment and, and get on with leading other beings to enlightenment first but there's just none of that you know potentially ends with basically you've left you you've detached from the material world and and that's that you rest in your own nature lights out and um, he doesn't then sort of say oh and p.s you can get off your backside and go and be useful <laughs> so yes. yeah it's yeah sad. but he definitely but he even, talks about it saying the hatha pradipika and saying you know mm. you basically only the only the yogi who looks like he's dead is truly liberated uh-huh. yeah but i was going to say patanjali offers a lot of um benefit you know in all those like cities and all the levels of samadhi and all that i mean it does seem like there's a lot of attention um true he spends a lot more time on that than postures (laughs) yeah (laughs) i guess i just um that's just so interesting yeah so i mean it's like enlightenment uh isn't a goal so much as just complete transcendence just leaving altogether I mean, there's a, way, yeah, there's a way it's described in, in uh, Roots of Yoga by by Jim Mallinson and Mark Singleton, which is, you know, uh, I mean, been very influential, I suppose, on, on, on what I've written. It's uh, you know, it's, a, it's a great survey of, of, of all of these these texts in the yoga tradition, and they they try to sort of sum it up for you know, sort of general purposes that the early yogis they all had a very similar aim and and it was it was basically you know it, it, it was transcendence of of, of of being a person um it's uh, i think they call it something like ontological suicide <laughs> basically you know removing the conditions of personhood so that you're not caught up in it um and you know that's it's extreme it really is yeah, that is extreme. Well, one of the favorite things I saw you say it was early on when I when I found you was um, something about yoga is not about union; it's about separation. And I was just so relieved to hear you say that because I get so frustrated, you know, by this kind of like this. The, I mean, I simplify things for sure, but I feel like people confuse accessibility and simplification. You know, I, I don't think they're the same thing. And um, I sometimes try to make personally try to make complicated ideas accessible which is not the same thing as actually Excellent. changing them I, I love that phrase that's that's really well put 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I, like this idea of, of union, I don't know if you could talk about that a bit. <laughs> well, I, I should probably just clarify before I, before I go into that, that, um, I mean, that transcendence of, 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 of the personal being could be, you know, as, as you're rightly suggesting, the, the, the seed of, of um, you know, selfless service. Uh, there's no reason for it not to be, and that's how it's spun in the Bhagavad Gita. Um, but uh, that's not a message that's strongly emphasized, you know, particularly in, in the sort of surviving relics of the, these ancient yoga traditions. There's, 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 you know, there are renunciate yogis and they have their sort of social order um, and they do provide service. In, in, you know, they, some of these sadhus, they live in a little village and they're the focal point for people to come and hang out and bring all their problems and sit around and chat for a bit. Um, but, but they just sit there. <laughs> so that's their role. I think the, the, the whole idea of activism and providing as a service for, 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 for uplifting the poor, that's, that's very, more, very much more recent, uh, Vivekananda and, and Gandhi, uh, rather than the ancient yoga text. But anyway, back to, back to union and separation. Um, you know, the, the lens through which yoga has been explained over the years has been through this idea of, of connection. And, um, and again, that makes it sound like you know, the, the whole aim of practice is to acknowledge our interconnection and our harmonious relationship with one another. But um, that's, 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 that's a, a message that comes from the early Upanishads, really, the, the philosophy that, that grows out of them that's known as, Ved, as Vedanta in its various forms has originally quite a, a non-dual quality that... It consists of recognizing no no distinction between you and the cosmos. If you if you don't see you as as as, as you, as it were, if you get beyond me and this this identification with the body and the mind and, and satisfying oneself through desires, and instead just see the timeless Atman that is one with Brahman, um, that's that's the oneness that's you know, probably really an articulation of pure consciousness. Um, and, and so that's that's the sort of message that a lot of the commentators on Patanjali have used and it's the popular definition of yoga it means union but, but Patanjali himself says very clearly union is the problem um it's, it's the it's the mechanism by which we get confused we get we, we, you know, we latch on to stuff um that we observe and we, we get confused with this you know sort of thinking capacity uh, as, to, as to what it is to, to actually be liberated you know we've got this deluded part of our brain that thinks it's enlightened when actually it's just caught up in stuff satisfying itself so his aim is to cause you know, the total separation of spirit and matter and um you know again if you take that to i think the thing i'm really trying to emphasize is if we take these things to the letter they're all very extreme <laughs> um, and the way that it's useful to me i think to engage with ancient tradition is to see that first of all and acknowledge i'm perhaps not going to follow these things to the letter and then immediately that requires me to reframe them a bit and and to start to say well what would it be to do this in a less extreme way and then it starts to be ah well it's it's the possibility of relationship this separation um potentially is really talking about um you know the need to to to, to, to always distinguish one thing from another um how can you have a relationship with another if, if everything's one? <laughs> it's only through duality that there is that possibility of, you know, there can be a connection between two things, but um, he's not really interested in that. But, but he is interested in using our relationship with the material world to ultimately learn to leave it behind, getting, getting more skilled at telling the difference between the subtlest states of mind and pure consciousness in the end. Um, but if we go down from those elevated realms back to day-to-day existence, we can just look at the ways in which we entangle ourselves and each other more deeply in suffering. Um, And so the Bhagavad Gita's spin on this is, you know, we should look to disconnect ourselves from the problem of suffering. And I think, you know, we can be skillful in the way that we look at relationship and the way that we look at how how we're relating to ourselves as much as the world. Uh, Are we compounding or diminishing suffering? Uh, and it's really, I mean, that's the Buddha's message, you know, uh, basically, uh, are you being more skillful or less skillful? Um, there's, there's, there's one way that's clearly more beneficial and you might not get enlightened. Does it matter? It's what, what are you doing in this moment? Is it, is it, are you part of the problem or part of the solution to put it in you know, straightforward mm. language? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, I, I like that. I like that. You know, the, the theme of reducing suffering, I think, is clear um, in, in both texts. I mean, the Gita and the Sutras, and that's all. That's as far as my um, training goes. You know, I don't go back much further than that. Um, 
and even between those two texts, there's, there's a lot of um, confusion. But I, I feel like that what you just described around um, duality, non-duality, that, that if people can understand that, I think that's always helped me in terms of understanding Patanjali's perspective, at least as, as dualistic, instead of this all, we're, we're all one all the time, um, you know, which is then the source of confusion. It's also a wonderful recipe for spiritual bypassing, you know, or you can just keep that, oh, we're all one, we're all interconnected, it's all lovely. I mean, you know, I, I did sort of say that in that last chapter on, you know, the, the activist thing, it's, 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 it's this whole problem in a way, people sort of self-satisfiedly thinking they've got somewhere while, while, while the world goes to hell and <laughs> the human race dies out. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure what we can do about those big picture problems and on a certain level. I mean, I did, I did devote quite a bit of energy to activism in you know, the, the previous decade. And I think, I suppose that was part of my own egomania. I had this megalomania. <laughs> <laughs> this, 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 this I don't know. I'm still in there. Climate change. Uh, sure, but we can only do very limited things as individuals. We can be part of a movement that's working towards something else. But even then, some of these forces are not within our control. Is, is all I'm really trying to get at. Yeah, but it doesn't mean it's well, not worth doing something either. Um, but around that spiritual bypass, like for example, right now, you know, in the US, we're having kind of a political crisis over here and <laughs> and you know and i've seen a few posts from on yoga yoga related posts people saying well yoga is not politics yoga is not political and it just makes me i don't know upset and angry actually because i think where where'd you come up with that like that's as untrue as anything else you know i, I mean i don't i don't think i, I feel like this idea oh of, of non-duality yoga is we're all one we're all the same we don't see difference um that is spiritual bypass and then also allows yoga practitioners who now number in the millions or i don't even know tens of millions probably around the world i am imagining Absolutely. yeah yeah tens of millions um, in the u.s i think by the last yeah time. tens of millions in the u.s then here in the America ignoring the political problem saying it's well that's not my practice and I think well it is your practice um I I of course then would say it's probably we, w- we would have different perspectives on what yoga tells us to do <laughs> based on wow. that <laughs> that's, that's, I guess what I'm trying to get at you know in some ways there's textual backup for for for, for Patanjali's basic message seems to be and you can see this most clearly in Sutra 133 when he's saying we should adopt equanimity towards the the evildoers because we don't don't let them harsh your mellow um and effectively that's that 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 is sort of encoded into the idea of 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 personal transcendence being the number one objective uh it it becomes quite a selfish pursuit in a way uh because he says you should have compassion for the unhappy and i think that's um to me, that's the one. I mean, you, you you know, you can choose between any four of those locks and keys or which one you want to pursue, but it seems like... Well, um, to a certain extent, but if we go to the commentary, which is, I think, what we have to do with the Yoga Sutras because they're, you know, they're, they're so condensed that you can't really understand them except by adding information. And if we add anything other than the original traditional commentary we've, we've just reinvented them anyway but what what's said is the reason i f- focused on the equanimity one is um vyasa or, or potentially depending on whether you think the commentary was written by a different dude or the same one it basically says the the, the aim is not positive thinking but restraining the mind um i mean that's that's that's, that's the basic gist of it that's that's word for word what Hari Harananda Aranya says in his summary of Vyasa's commentary Vyasa's commentary just says this sort of thought gives rise to cleaner virtue and thus the mind becomes pure a purified mind becoming one pointed eventually attains serenity so it really is about preserving the clarity of mind that will enable you to to leave the world behind it's it's, that's always the objective so cultivating those benevolent qualities it creates this calm mind that's able to focus and then go inwards um rather than yeah developing compassion for social activism just isn't it just isn't his message unfortunately however much we would like that to be um but i still think obviously you know compassion is is, is a wonderful thing (laughs) right well he doesn't he doesn't see it very often he doesn't i mean it only comes up there i think in the entirety of the situation indeed and i think that's one of those cases where he's you know borrowed some stuff that's popular around yeah, particularly the Buddhist tradition. Buddhist, yeah, uh, but, but what the, about what about um, ahimsa though? Or I mean, um, isn't that a ethical practice of non-harm? I mean, isn't that what we're trying to do? Is, is 
Sure, but the but the aim again is to to leave the world behind rather than rather than to get more involved in it. So again, it's to stabilize the mind. If you're if you're causing harm, you're ultimately uh, you know bringing instability in your mind. Although he does say you know. Nonviolence is is never causing harm to any creature, and everything else is rooted in that. Um, so clearly, you know, there's there's a benefit. I mean, there's, there's a, there was a slogan that people used to use here in, in the environmental movement: um, riding bikes. There's a sort of sticker I think that people used to have saying "one less car." Um, so if you know, okay, if you're if you're not being violent and you're in your cave, then I guess that's you know one less violent person in the world. But it's also not somebody who's out there at the same time counteracting violence, just just not contributing to it or anything else. That's that's yeah, I guess what I'm to say. yeah, and that's that, I I agree. I mean, I think the sutras don't demand social activism, but that, that's why I, I tend to move then to the the Gita. I mean, Absolutely, I yeah. I think it definitely yeah. more engaged spirituality there but but also in a dangerous way because i think it can go too far like i actually i worry that um you know this just war idea in the gita can be used by anyone you know oh, absolutely. Any, yeah, yeah no, my, my yeah. favorite example of this is you know both both gandhi um, and his assassin mm. said they were inspired by the gita so uh, right, <laughs> <you're> right. <laughs> but, um, yeah and and obviously that's you know this is this problematic. Uh, there's there's a, a guy who was a scholar actually at the the, the college where I was going to do a PhD. His name was Agyananda Bharati, Austrian by birth, and uh, he lived as a monk in India. And he, he was always uh, he didn't have a very positive view of the Bhagavad Gita because he he felt it was often exploited by yeah. Hindi nationalists. Um, and yeah. Yeah, he he had come from Austria around the time of World War Two, and you know he was obviously painfully aware of where that can lead. And uh, you know, he mm. said, there's, "There's a love of strong men in, in, in modern India, and this message mm. of the Gita, you know, it appealed to some of the Nazis. Um, some of what the Nazis have to say appeals in modern India. You can find mm. my camp on sale all over the place." But uh, yeah, yeah, so I read that in the book. I was surprised, and also, I mean, the way the Nazis use the swastika, which is a Hindu symbol, right? Or it's a yeah, yeah. Also popular in Buddhist temples as well. Um, but yeah, literally the word, I mean, su is good. Uh, asti is the verb to be. And, and this diminutive suffix ka, it means it's a little sign of auspiciousness, basically. Um, it's certainly not thought of that way anymore. Um, it's, you know, it's a sign of you know, absolute chauvinist rage. Um, but the Gita does have one, I'm just going to draw up one line, verse uh, 325. It says it's the exact opposite of Patanjali's message. Uh, the wise should act without attachment, intending to maintain the welfare of the world. So there is this exhortation to do things for the sake of all beings. Um, and I think what I really have concluded, and that's why I just I couldn't get into it in this book. It was hard enough to keep it short at the, the best of times already. Um, uh, I think... Yeah, in an Indian context, there's a word that, that sums up all of what we're talking about, and it's dharma, um, which is basically the best translation of that that I can think of is right action. And there's a, there's a lot of it in the Gita, and it's the message of the Mahabharata in which the Gita is embedded. But um, you know, we don't really have that framework in, in, in the Western world because we haven't sort of grown up around the rest of that textual tradition. We're looking at one small part of you know, Indian religious thought, in a way, the, 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 the texts that are about moksha, how to leave the world behind, rather than mm-hmm. seeing that's only one of four options. I mean, in some ways, uh-huh. there's, there's dharma, there's karma, there's artha. So there's living in the world, making a living, enjoying oneself, the Karma Sutra, older than Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Um, and, then, and then there's all these texts about dharma, many of which are you know, pretty hideous in some of the things they say about about the caste system and whatnot in the place of women. But um, still, there's a broader context. And I think um, you know, Georg Feuerstein, towards the end of his life, echoing Carl Jung, was basically saying, the West needs its own yoga philosophy. We need to, we need to embed this sort of teachings about you know, transcending the, 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 the never-ending, you know, greedy person in the head. Uh, we, you know, we need to marry that with, with some sort of, you know, how to live in the world. Uh, teaching and and that's what's missing and that's that's I think I guess the reason I didn't ultimately do a PhD was you can't you know you can't, you can't write that stuff and have it called a PhD it, it's, uh. it's, it's <laughs> you know, you're writing your own dharma text you're basically trying to be a guru rather than than, than yeah. a, a scholars are meant to pick things to pieces not start you know, new religious movements <laughs> yeah uh, I I had a um one of my favorite um 
sections in the Gita is chapter 632. It says, uh, I think I'm, this is, the yogi who perceives the essential oneness everywhere naturally feels the pleasure or pain of others as his or her own. Yes, that's I a really good that, line. That really speaks to that issue of social justice, of feeling, it actually, in that section, he goes, he first just kind of describes enlightenment and then says, well, you'll even, like the next level is then feeling other people's pleasure and pain. I thought that's really interesting to show that kind of level of, um, compassion beyond beyond yourself which isn't yeah which is kind of uh, very much opposed to what patanjali says usually um which is just focus on yourself um Absolutely. yeah i mean that, it's interesting that that comes in the chapter that's basically teaching patanjali's yoga you know meditate a lot of crossover in the techniques but the message is different and, and it is it is it is never suggested in the bhagavad-gita that that's an end, pardon me, unto itself. It's 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 a prelude to skillful action in the world. The two definitions of yoga in the second chapter are all about maintaining even-mindedness while getting on with doing stuff without attachment to personal gain. So it's it's, it's sort of it's it's rewritten the the script in a way. It's saying you can you, you can transcend your self-centeredness best by serving other people rather than disappearing and. Uh, I think I think that's a really important message, and uh, I guess you know it'd be 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 good, and I'd really look forward to reading your book for this reason to just put that into twentieth twenty first century context. Yeah, and I, and I would say thank you. I, I would say the sutras, in a way, t- to me, they still speak to that same idea because it's like if you are able to kind of con- I don't want to say control, but um, calm your mind enough, uh, release your own personal egotistic attachment to every situation and what you'll get out of it, I think you do end up having a more um, generous and compassionate worldview, you know, because then other people's um, concerns and pain becomes more apparent. Do you know what I mean? I feel like it, it, that Patanjali is, there is a certain amount of, um, I don't know, compassion as a subtext to that practice for me, maybe not in the end, if you do leave the world altogether, but um, in the teaching, especially like of non-attachment or, um, you know. Contentment, I think, is perhaps the most powerful of all of those things. I mean, sure, lovely to tell the truth, not steal from people and not harm them. That's that's all great. But the the niyama of santosha, just just to be okay with the world as it is. (laughs) Yeah hell of a challenge but it's it's so liberating it says it's you know it makes you i think it's 16 times more happy than the best sex basically <laughs> uh-huh, 16 times um, so one, one last thing i just i don't want to keep it too long but the what do you think um i know you mentioned towards the end you talk about how yoga and meditation have been separated which i think is really oh. an important teaching uh you know, because this modern postural yoga or, con- or the commercial yoga that we're looking at, I mean, is so far from, um, I don't know, the tradition. Um, what what do you think we should be bringing back in? I mean, other than meditation, I think you said that very clearly. Like, what, what other teachings? Yeah. I think in the in the Mahabharata, which which says very clearly the best best kind of yoga is meditation, um, and it's got two varieties. One is to focus the mind, and the other is to control the breath. And um, you know, both of those things, relatively speaking, don't get much of a look in compared to making shapes with the body. Um, and yeah, integrating those 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 two things into it um, can be very powerful. I mean, I don't have much experience, I suppose, teaching accessible yoga. I don't have much experience teaching yoga this year, actually. I'm not a big fan of Zoom teaching, so <laughs> I, I teach the odd class now. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I taught my mum some yoga. My mum uses a wheelchair. Oh. She, she's had a stroke and uh, oh. doesn't have capacity to do very much at all. And and and. It really, you know, it got me thinking, and uh, basically yeah. all, we, all we wind up doing is you know, she lifts her arm and she puts it down again. But can she focus and breathe and synchronize that with lifting the arm and putting it down again? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that that already seems to have you know quite an impact for her. And so it, it changed my perspective on you know, how much can be done with how little. I suppose really is. Well, but also it goes back to me. I mean, the reason I mentioned meditation is just because it's pretty accessible. I mean, there's oftentimes that it's too subtle for someone or if they're a beginner, it seems challenging, but meditation and pranayama are actually not dependent on physical ability, unlike most of what we see in the commercial 
scene, a yoga scene of this very extreme calisthenic, calisthenics and gymnastics. And, well, you say that, but then there's always someone trying to push it further. You know, there's the Wim Hofs and uh, yeah. But I was just thinking, like for your mom, yeah, yeah, no, but for your mom, and what I try to teach in accessible yoga is like. Like you said, I mean, small movements can be incredibly powerful, like you said, but also there's so many other practices like, you know, guided meditation, breathing, many kinds of meditation, relaxation, you know, that I think can be incredibly powerful and are, are relatively accessible um, because these are the, the subtle practices of yoga, which I think connect back to more to the tradition of yoga than a lot of what we're seeing as yoga these days. I think there's another message as well that's, uh, you know, we go back to the yoga is union thing. If it, 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 every time the Upanishads talk about the location of the Atman, pretty much, um, and then Krishna echoes this in the Bhagavad Gita, he says he's in everybody's hearts because he is the Atman. Um, yeah, it's always located in the heart. Um, even the first sort of articulation of the, the philosophy that Patanjali develops in the Kata Upanishad, which defines yoga as the same as Patanjali restraint of the mind and the senses, basically. Um, it says at the very end, um, I think it's uh, verse 17 of the, the sixth book of the Kata Upanishad, says you have to extricate this Purusha. Um, it lives in the heart and it has to be sort of drawn out. Um, so you know, this 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 idea of the heart is 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 is, is you know, very much uh, recurring, and yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's easy in a modern context, I suppose, to to get a little bit you know, perhaps even cynical about that, as if you know, open your heart, how much will that achieve? But um, have we got have we got a big enough heart to you know be able to hold our own pain, never yeah. mind anybody else's, and and there you uh, go. Uh, real loving kindness i think but also i think like you said so you connected it back to um the kata upanishad but i would say that that there just by doing that in my mind you've connected it to social justice and like trauma-informed teaching um accessible yoga like to me these these modern movements that i see um are trying to connect to that concept of um yeah opening your heart but not in a way that's like you know feel good yoga (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know, it's developing the capacity to withstand all the hell that life throws at them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, strong. Yeah, even in the in the sutras, in, in Patanjali, I noticed in in chapter three where he's going through all the um, the different cities, you know, he's saying focus on, you know, what is it? He's like, focus on a feather and you can levitate. But then there's one that goes like focus on the heart to calm the mind. Yeah. And it's like, wait, you, didn't you just give me this whole lecture like for the last two chapters on how to do that and how you here you're just saying just focus on the heart <laughs> yeah by samyama on the heart knowledge of the mind ensues yeah and in a way the word for heart is is connected to mind anyway so there's yeah. there is this understanding of a, a you know, subtler way of knowing and, yeah uh, Anyway, I love that. Thank you. That's beautiful. I mean, maybe we should end there. I, I love that focus on the heart. Um, thank you. Thanks well, so much, thank Daniel. You. Thanks for this beautiful book and all your, I mean, the amazing amount of work you must have done to create this book. I, I can't even quite imagine it. Oh, thanks. I was standing on the shoulders of giants. And somebody once told me that, you know, they had to sum up what this journalism gift gives you. It's basically, he called me a synthesizer. <laughs> so, you know, condensing lots of information into into a short and pithy space that's 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 what i've done but that means other people's work has been you know very influential and important so there's, there's a lot of lot of people's uh, books and articles cited at the back if anybody wants to dig deeper mm. and um well i have two last things one one is i like to leave um listeners with a question at the end of the episodes i don't know if there's a question that comes to your mind that connects to this book especially um is there something that comes out that kind of rises up to the top for you in terms of what should we be asking ourselves maybe as modern practitioners oh it's hard to put it into one question because i think it's two it's you know do we want a relationship with tradition in the first place because there really isn't an obligation to have one and uh, if it's not speaking to us i think it's more important to think about you know how to how to relate to one another and then modern life um, rather than dressing it all up in yeah, stuff that doesn't necessarily relate to, to, to what we're trying to do um, but then if, if the answer is yes it's uh, you know what are we actually trying to achieve 
Um, because that's the, that's the disconnect, really. I think that very few people are trying to escape rebirth. Very few people are trying to leave their body behind quickly. <laughs> and, you know, very few people are even going the full distance with meditation to these, these realms that make that possible. So what, what actually is our objective? Uh, and I think that is defining and it's quite a liberating thing to, uh, to acknowledge, I'm, I'm not looking for what those texts are actually presenting, and therefore I need to reframe everything in terms of what it is I'm trying to achieve here. Um, and you know, diminishing suffering is already, you know, it's a, it's a pretty pretty noble goal and can be interpreted in many ways. But in which way, you know? And I think that once priorities are clear, then then other things follow. Yeah, that's a great question for all of us. You know, what are we trying to achieve in our practice? I think that's, it's always helpful, I think, to reflect. Um, I try to do that every year. That Instead of doing a New Year's resolution, I actually, my, my New Year's practice is to ask myself, what am I trying to achieve in my practice? What, are, what is the goal here? Um, so I, I appreciate that. Um, my last question for you is how, how can people find you? So, the, I, I mean, the book is available anywhere, I guess. Yes, anywhere books. Yeah, yeah. No, indeed, anywhere books are sold. <laughs> and uh, uh-huh. truthofyoga.com will tell you more about it. And uh, the, through that, you'll also find my other website, which has uh, all the other things I get up to. Um, so okay. you can reach me there and you can ask me questions there. There's a contact form. So if anyone has any questions, I'd be, be happy to hear from them. Great. Thank, thank you so much for your time and um, yeah, for speaking with me today. It was fun. Oh, thank you, Juvenal. It's been, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> so I wish you all the best and yeah, look forward to listening to more podcasts. Oh, thanks so much. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye for okay, now. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another week of the Accessible Yoga Podcast. I hope you'll go to AccessibleYogaTraining.com slash podcast, where you can check out the show notes for this episode, get links to everything we talked about, and also sign up to be on the interest list for the next Accessible Yoga online training with Jeevana Heyman, myself, and a whole host of other teachers. This is like a survey course in yoga, accessibility, and equity. If you feel like your 200-hour teacher training just really didn't give you what you needed to be able to reach all your students equitably, you'll want to check out this training. There's 30 hours of continuing education that you can get, as well as a wealth of knowledge and connection and community with other teachers who are in the same struggle as you. Class starts May 10th and enrollment opens in early May, so be sure to go to AccessibleYogaTraining.com and get on the interest list so you'll be the first to know when we open enrollment. You'll also get a bunch of teachings over the next few weeks from Jeevana about accessibility and yoga to get you ready for this amazing course. I hope you'll go check it out, get on the interest list, leave us a review of the podcast, let us know how we're doing. We're going to take a break in a few weeks to prepare for season two of the podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. If you have questions, if you'd like for us to interview a guest or discuss a topic, go to the podcast page, accessibleyogatraining.com slash podcast, and give us your feedback, ask us a question, or suggest a topic. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.